Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name is Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I catch up with architect James Bieber of Bieber Architects. James and I have a very fun conversation talking about his background, how he got into design and architecture from the world of science, and what he's most obsessed with right now. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with James Bieber. Okay, guys, today I am excited to welcome all the way from New York City, AIA fellow and architect, James Bieber. As the leader of the firm, James is responsible for such icons as the Harley-Davidson Museum, the Fashion Center Needle and Button, Gotham Bar and Grill on Mesa Grill, uh, and the Glasshouse Visitor Center, and a long list of other visual gems. His firm, Bieber Architects, is a tightly organized, highly experienced team of architects and designers working for more than 25 years in New York and nationally. As they describe on their website, Bieber Architects looks to the users, owners, and brief for context, ultimately seeing their role as interpreters of the projects, which I think is a great description. So James, without further ado, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thank you, Josh. Delighted to be here. So a few of our past guests have been from Pentagram and you've been high on a few other people's lists. So thanks a lot for making this happen. Absolutely. One of my favorite questions to ask everybody to get started. I want to talk a little bit about the, the Pentagram background and that too, but um, maybe before we get into that, um, I always love to understand what designers origin stories look like. So tell us about how you got into this world of design and architecture. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it was a kind of a lateral move, sideways move, or a um, uh, in, the unintentional consequence. I actually started studying biology at college, and it was <laughs> there. The natural I, transition of course, from biology is, to architecture. It's it's the way most people get into this, I think. <laughs> and what I discovered was that I was much more of a kind of PBS scientist than I was an actual scientist. You know, I, I love <laughs> science and I love um, all things kind of uh, um, empirical, but the problem when I was studying biology is that, there, and this is not true at all today. This is, in fact, the opposite is true. Biology is amazing, and and was I was if I was studying it starting today, I might never have become an architect. But at the time, it was so devoid of any kind of moral choices. You know, most of the things that were going to be discovered had been discovered. You were you were working on just the finest of the finest of the kind of granular details, and and that just didn't. I just didn't find that. Enough, and plus, I wasn't, and the truth is, I wasn't all that great at it. So, um, <laughs> so I was, uh, I, I was at school. I went to Cornell, and I entered this thing called the Division of Unclassified Students, which is like, you know, it's like the sort of like CIA knock list. You like sort of don't exactly exist, but you can take courses anywhere. And I ended up taking courses in architecture because that's what interested me. As it turned out, it's really, really cold and snowy in Ithaca, New York. And I had borrowed this book from my father called The Bauhaus. And it was that incredible 1969, mm -hmm. 1970 opus, you know, kind of in a big slipcase designed by Muriel Cooper at MIT Press, you know, a, 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 the first book of its kind, actually. And I spent the entire snowy winter reading the entire book. And by the time I was done, I thought, oh, okay, well, that's that's what I want to do. And because I was in this weird division of unclassified students, I could take courses anywhere. I never had to pass a, an architecture entry exam and just started. And it just kind of just seems to have worked out. Nobody's thrown me out yet. <laughs> so the, the experiment continues. Exactly. Well, it, sometimes it feels that way. I thought for a long time that I, you know, I'd taken my last exam when I left school. I'd taken my last exam when I passed the licensing exam. And it just never it never ends. And there's this expression in Italian, like the examination is never over. Well, <laughs> it continues. <laughs> well, tell us about how your um, post-collegiate career led you to Panagram and today to Bieber Architects. Well, I started, um, I started a, at a, you know, fairly, I went to a kind of typical architecture school and started at a fairly typical architecture firm. But when I started my own firm, um, 
my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was a graphic designer, is a graphic designer, and she was working at uh, CBS Records doing record jackets, like those big square, 12-inch square things. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing world. Um, her boss was Paula Cher. And so when Paula left CBS and started her own firm, I designed her office, and I sort of became the guy that was designing graphic designers' offices. Eventually, Paula joined Pentagram, and Pentagram, you know, has always had architects, graphic designers, and industrial designers, but, you know, primarily graphic designers. And the New York office, when Paula was there, said, one of the partners said, you know, I think the next partner that we take in should be uh, an architect. And she said, well, I know an architect who's not an asshole. (laughs) She literally (laughs) said that. And, And it's like, and sometimes I think, it's good to be the architect who's not an asshole, you know, and it's actually, um, it's not as common as you think. So she suggested me and I, I joined Pentagram. I was there for 19 years as a partner and it was the most amazing kind of post postgraduate education I, I could possibly, I could possibly hope for, you know, I was working with Paul, I was working with Michael Beirut and lots of others who made it clear to me that what I was really interested in and what I was really good at was identity. It was architecture as identity. It was finding the identity, finding the idea that fit the client, not not the idea that the client would, you know, accept as their own, but actually the idea that fit them and was really about them and were allowed me to sort of disappear a bit into the background and not become the the, the formal personality of a of a piece of architecture, but to become more like the um, the writer in a way. Or I can never figure out whether it's the writer or the director, but it's definitely not the actor. You know, the 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 actor is really, or the subject of the biography, so to speak, is really the client or the user. So that kind of approach to architecture was something that I I think I carried with me, but but ultimately honed in at Pentagram. I think as, you know, someone in myself who runs a branding agency, when I read that phrase on your website, the architecture of identity, like I kind of immediately went to where I think you go with that, which, which I think is a really cool place. And also maybe speaks to your longtime collaboration with graphic designers. I think that just, just resonates so quickly in my mind. Well, it continues. And, you know, I, I've said to someone recently, and I think it's probably true. And this is, I am being immodest, but I think it's also true. I may know more about graphic design than any architect alive today. I mean, I I know a lot about graphic design. I know graphic designers. I know the I know the work. I know the history. I love graphic design. I live in a house surrounded by graphic design. I collaborate with graphic designers, and yet I never do graphic design because it is such a different way of thinking. It is such a different skill. You know, my wife Karen Goldberg, who has designed record jackets and book covers and magazines, you know, she is so fast and posters and the like, and she is so quick. She has more ideas in a week than I have in a year. And and, and I only need a few ideas in a year to really be successful. She needs, you know, she has, it's just, it's the hummingbird versus the tortoise. You know, the, the metabolism of a graphic designer is so fast. Ideas come so quickly. Projects go through the entire process. You know, it, I know graphic designers who if a project lasts more than three months, they just, you know, they're tearing their hair out. <laughs> I've never had a project that only lasted three months. You know, I've had projects that last close to a decade, a lot of them actually. <laughs> and so it's kind of a marathon versus a sprint. And, you know, that for that reason and for others, I can't do graphic design, but I can really, I'm a really good critic of graphic design and I love it. You guys have probably had clients take over three months just to like select carpet and exactly a contract <laughs> takes three months to work out sometimes really, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, um, it's fine, which is perfect because that's the pace at which I work and, or that's the pace at which architects work, I should say, because the process of making buildings, making interiors, making, you know, d- designing at that level of complexity is, it just takes a long time. There was a time when, um, just as I was getting out of school, when architecture started to be much more kind of fashionable, and one of the problems was that architects were expected to work at the 
pace of fashion. You know, fashion, it's at least four seasons, sometimes like five or six seasons. Um, you can't repeat what you've done before. Architects just can't work that fast. But there was an expectation that the design would continue to change. I, I had one I had one client say to me, and I'd done, I've done a lot of projects for individual clients. I've designed 12 homes for someone once, 12 different homes. I've oh, designed wow. multiple restaurants and offices and homes for others. And one of them once said to me, well, we can't use that light fixture because you've used that before. And I thought, well, you know, there aren't that many great, well, there are a lot of great light fixtures, but that shouldn't, you shouldn't have to disqualify everything you've ever <laughs> done before. I would be out of business, you know, if, if every time I had an idea or a detail or a, an object or a light fixture or something I like or a finish that I liked, it was the last time I could ever use it. Some of the guys that I used to work with would call that ripping ourselves off. But, you know, when you'd use a typeface that you used two identity systems ago, like, oh, you're ripping yourself off again, aren't exactly. you? <laughs> well, you know, Michael Beirut did a series of posters for Yale and the 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 kind of the gimmick of the of of the poster series. And I think it went on for maybe it's a hundred posters, but a lot. You know, they were they were uh Announcements for lectures and yearly programs and so on. He, the idea was he would never use the same typeface twice. Mm -hmm. And that became the idea. So you can sort of imagine where it went. <laughs> eventually. eventually, exactly. You know, Comic Sans eventually has to appear. Right? And then, of course, with his uh, mentor um, sort of being the, the king of, you know, like three or four typefaces or whatever it was that Massimo Vignelli ascribed to. So. Well, and, and he was, and he was right. I mean, what he used to say, which is, I think, and, and you know, he was trained as an architect because everybody who is a designer in Italy was trained as an architect. And so what he always said was that the type, it's not the typeface, it's the topography. And of course he's exactly right mm -hmm. because we use, you know, we use the same menu catalog pile of stuff over and over again, but hopefully we're not doing the same work over and over again. And musicians use the same notes and the same instruments, you know, but hopefully they're not rewriting the same song. So I think he's right. Um, the variety available in topography is, you know, a little overwhelming as it is, as, as the variety of materials and, uh, and everything else in architecture can be a little overwhelming. So I understand the reductivist ur urges. Yeah. Something else that I read on your website, which I thought was really interesting was this line that said, every building is a biography. Can you unpack a little bit about what that means to you? Well, it's part of the whole notion of identity. You know, these buildings don't exist devoid of any context. And, you know, I'm sitting in an office. I, I, my office is in the Woolworth building. I'm looking out the window and straight across the window, blocking my view of the Brooklyn Bridge, by the way, although it is foggy, so I probably wouldn't see it today, <laughs> is a building by Frank Gehry. The building is called New York by Gary. It's a it's a residential tower with a kind of rippling um, aluminum skin or titanium skin. And what's so interesting about it is that it, the, the the developers borrowed Frank Gary's identity, and and it is literally called New York by Gary. There's something. There, it's a clever marketing idea, but there's something so. But but it's not how I want to make buildings. Let's put it that way. The, the building turns out to be a biography of Frank Gehry, not a biography of the developers or the site or the look, you know, the proximity to the Brooklyn Bridge or any of those things. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in the in the let's call them the owner, you know, whether it's literally the owner or the user or the renter. Um, the client to me, you know, I I went to school at a time when clients were sometimes described as the problem the people that got in the way of really good work, I kind of look at it exactly the opposite way, that without a client, and, and without a smart client, and most of my clients are smarter than I am, so I'm lucky, without a smart client, you really have, I have nothing to go on. I have nothing to invent except to insert, insert my own identity, and I just don't think that these projects should be about me. So when, for instance, I designed the Harley-Davidson Museum, just by circumstance, it took a very long time. It took eight years change of site, uh, change of, um, change of lots of things. And so it took a long time to do it. And in that time I learned an incredible amount about Harley Davidson. You know, I started riding again. I hadn't ridden since college. I, I had this deal with Harley Davidson where I would borrow a bike every year. So I was kind of constantly living, uh, not the Harley culture necessarily, but, but definitely trying to 
trying to understand what this was all about, what this phenomenon was all about, more as an observer than as a purely as a participant. And it's that kind of um, it's that kind of uh, what would you call it um, method architecture, you know, method acting, mm-hmm. trying to inhabit the role of the user, trying to really understand what is the right, what is right. What is the right expression? What's the right building? What's the right language? That's what. Um, that's why I think every building is a biography, and hopefully, their biographies about other people. Occasionally, they may end up inadvertently being about me too. But I sort of, I, I still see it that way. I still see even houses, which is you know you think of as being very much a kind of small scale creation of an architect. I really think that the owner is key, and I am lucky. I have lots of fantastic clients, and the smarter, the better, because they make you do better work. Well, maybe if you don't mind indulging me, um, I know a lot of our, our listeners are both designers and practice owners or aspiring future entrepreneurs. So maybe tell us a little bit about how your firm is shaped today, like how you're staffed and uh, kind of what everybody's role is. We have, I've, I've always had either by choice or or by circumstance i could never tell which a very small office when i started doing this you know i I started working in an office that grew from i think i was the third employee to about 20 or 25 i left to form my own firm it was one two three then four you know it kind of grew from just a couple of people and what i realized is that i really love being an architect i really love designing things and i and that the bigger a firm becomes the more you end up being a manager it, the the firm I came from, the principal, this guy named Paul Siegel, was kind of a genius at at getting the best creative work out of young, smart designers who were you know enthusiastic and wanted to wanted to work on you know a whole variety of projects. And that was he did that very well. It's just not what I'm interested in doing. I love design and I love collaborating with groups of people and and owners and clients and so on. And so my my firm has never – I don't think we've ever been bigger than 10 people, 10 architects, and now we're about six. It turns out that you can do quite a bit of work with just a small team, You know, especially when for larger projects we have a, an architect of record. Our role is really, as the design architect, it doesn't take many people, and we're incredible. I think, I think that we are among the most efficient – in terms of productivity per staff um, offices that I've, that I've um, seen. And in fact, I was talking to, I was talking to um, a a guy who is a kind of eminence breeze of one of the very large firms in New York. And he had, he's kind of semi-retired, but still involved. And he said, Oh, how's the new firm? And I said, it's great. It's great. He said, how many people do you have? And I said, I think we're like six now. And he said, don't get any bigger. And (laughs) coming from a guy who had a firm of 300 people, who understood the the obligation of feeding that kind of gigantic machine? Um, I took the advice very seriously. So it's a small firm in which I think there's a fairly high level of expertise. Um, there is a kind of there's not a hierarchy as much as there is a, a, a sort of stepping scale of of experience and. I'm I'm really happy when there are more experienced people to teach the others and I can teach them. And it's a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a, a cascade of knowledge in, in some way. People tend to stay a long time. Some people more than a decade, one person more than two. And when they leave, a lot of them, in fact, I'd say at least half of them go on to do either to form their own firm or in one case to go, I cut two cases actually, to go back to um, an architecture school and teach and go for tenure. And I, I think that's fantastic. I think it's I, Paul Siegel, the guy who, the only guy who I ever worked for, once referred to the people that worked in his office as alumni. And I thought, what a great, what a nice way of mm-hmm. uh, thinking about it instead of staff. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, what is you know, in that size? I would imagine you're still very involved in the design. So what what does your day to day role look like, and what's maybe an average day or average week for you as far as kind of mix of design versus meetings or administrative stuff? You know, I I like to think that I can work on design more than half the day. Um, I just did this thing where I took my computer and took it off my desk and put it onto a sort of standing desk on the other side of my desk. I have mm-hmm. sit at a sort of 
partner size desk. And so I now there's now a price to pay uh, for for using email for standing at a computer for using a computer and and I and that really helps because you know if it's always sitting on your desk even if you can push it back it's always a laptop so I can always just kind of push it back and I never fold it down unfortunately um, you know it's a kind of constant temptation the TV is always on so you're always staring at the screen or or trying not to so I found that if I can just put it on the other side of the world and never not stare at it but be but be you know, kind of have an analog world and have a digital world. Um, it is a great way to separate those two things out and to not to to try to define a block of time that's big enough to actually accomplish work instead of flitting around from thing to thing. And I think that someone like me, one of the pitfalls of doing so many different things in the course of the day is that you can actually uh, just become a kind of uh, you know, an, an ADD kind of uh, kind of manager, and this helps me slow down. So I spend so I like to think I spend half my day working on specifically on projects, but it, and it might be email or it might be looking at drawings on a screen. But it's as I mean, when I just before I got on the line with you, I was working on you know with a pen on tracing paper on a on some some drawings, and so if if I can spend half of my day doing things like that. The other half, looking for new work, writing things, um, developing new ideas, uh, kind of staying in touch with people, then I think that's a great mix. And I'm trying more and more to spend uh, to spend a little less time in the office and a little bit more time elsewhere where I can actually sit down and have more control over input. Yeah, it's always the the love hate battle for me of like being on an airplane is that you're sort of yeah, pinned exactly. in, and you can't move, and it's the most uncomfortable seat known to man. But you know, it's great for sketchbook time. But they can't. But they can't call you. You know, it's like <laughs> it's right. it's your it's the only place you can't virtually the only place you can't be called. Even in the subway now, I get calls. My phone rings because now the subway <laughs> appears to be wired. I, I it just kind of happened, but I'll be in the I'll be in the subway. My phone will ring. I'll pick it up and I'll think, I I can't believe I can have a conversation. It's like it's going to stop in two seconds. It's just a coincidence. But in fact, you can even get a call on the subway now. So there is a pleasure to being a little bit out of touch, and it's hard to do that artificially. There are people who can do that. I I had a partner at Pentagram who would only answer email after twelve noon, and I thought. Well, you're not going to be in business for long, but, but, but congratulations on the self-control. <laughs> yeah. It's always, uh, I, I think the idea of stepping away from it or having to walk across the room to check emails, a really, really great suggestion because for me, if it's, if it's within reach, I'm the same way. If that bell rings, you know, it just makes that, that brain happy to reply to that email so quickly. Exactly. Exactly. And I know I also put it at a standing desk, which is a nice, change of pace so that there's a slightly higher cost. Like I have to stand. Well, I mean, you know, standing takes slightly more energy than sitting. So I have to stand in order to, to, uh, look at email, which is, I think is a good, it's just about the right balance. I also am in an office and I've always been in offices without a private offices. So I'm sitting in a conference room now just for the quiet, but I, not having an office is kind of key to staying connected to everything that's going on. And there are, you know, it, Clients always say, well, isn't there like a privacy issue? What if you're trying to have a private conversation? There's always a place to have – we have conference rooms. There's always a place mm -hmm. to have a private conversation. That's really not the problem. If if there are just two people in a room, every noise matters. As soon as it starts to fill up, there's a kind of general buzz of sound, almost a kind of white noise that makes everything feel much more private, much more relaxed. Um, I, I used to find that at Pentagram, that if I was the first one there – the second person there, I felt like, you know, they, they couldn't help but overhear me. But by the time there were 25 people, it just didn't matter anymore. And I think that may be illusory. That may just be uh, – maybe I was just as as uh, as audible as, as ever, but I didn't think I was. And so it's that kind of privacy is in your mind kind of thing. So I love being connected and there is a price of distraction, but, you know, there's also a, a, um, a benefit of efficiency. So the problems that get – raised issues that come that come to the surface everybody here is more or less at the same time we respond too quickly there's a sort of general i mean we use software to do the same thing but there's a general culture of um of 
being highly responsive to all the issues. And I think that as soon as people get partitioned, as soon as there's too much distance or communication changes, that becomes difficult to do. Maybe circling back to the sketching or sketchbook thing, I really enjoyed on your website this section called 100 Ideas. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that about that particular project. Well, it's funny. I started this a few years ago, and because Bloomberg was so such an activist, I, I thought I better hurry up because he's going to do all these ideas before I, before before I'm done. <laughs> before you can take credit them. for them, exactly. So it was an, it was this idea that. Um, I'm trying to remember how it started. I don't remember how it started exactly, but I started collecting in a sketchbook ideas for New York, and they weren't ideas like, you know, 25th and 5th really needs a, uh, you know, a hot dog stand. It wasn't specific. It was a. They were much more sort of general urban ideas. Um, the idea that you could pile up all the snow in certain streets and make like kind of a ski slope during the winter would be like a great way to get rid of the snow. <laughs> you could cover some streets with uh, sand and make them beaches during the summer. Um, gee, what if we had like, you know, glass manhole covers so that at night these things kind of lit up and you could kind of see the underworld. And it just kind of went on and on. And things like taxis that have USB charging ports, that's already happened. You know, these things start mm -hmm. to happen or citywide free Wi-Fi is, you know, hopefully going to happen. And But it was, um, it was more like, I described it, I think, in the forward as, you know, a cranky New Yorker's ideas. You know, there's always there's always this notion that we can make this. Actually, this is, I think is an architecture thing, an architect thing. You know, I noticed that when I didn't have the right dinnerware, I designed it. You know, I designed it and had it made. And that's that's, <laughs> that's very of, architect of you. Yeah, it's sort of that sort of idiocy is I think um, endemic <laughs> to architects. And it's the same thing about about a city. Well, you know, we're annoyed by certain things. Or think think we could actually make things more fun and better, and so we we have the hubris to decide to redesign the city or the way the city works. And so I think that's how it started. I then tried thought about getting it published, and it just turned out to be, frankly, more. You know, it's, it's harder to get a book published than it is to get a building built, and you know that's the that's dirty secret about graphic design. So I started just publishing it online, and you know, occasionally. Someone like I did this one thing, which was like tourist lanes on the sidewalks, because every New Yorker is so <laughs> irritated by the pace. You know, these tourists, they sort of like stand six abreast and walk slowly down the sidewalk, not knowing that that impedes that they have just stopped the entire city from operating. And so um, rather than just kind of push them aside, I thought, well, why don't we just have tourist lanes and they can take the inside track, right? They can be next to the building so they can window shop and we'll just kind of zoom by them. I, I got a note from someone who'd already done that as an art piece. So it's fantastic that, nice. um, you know, so we, uh, so I gave him credit and showed the piece and there were a couple of others in which people got, um, were way ahead of me. So it, it, mostly <laughs> art, mostly artists actually, but, uh, every, every, but every cranky New Yorker wants to change the city. So is this something you continue to add to, or is this kind of a, a, a period that's, that's closed for you? Um, I, I have to admit, it's been a while since I've added things, but I've actually now just asked the, the staff, the, the studio to start thinking of things because I'd rather make it a kind of open source and just keep doing it. And even if it has to be in my hand, even if the sketch has to be kind of consistent and be in my hand, it'd be great if everybody contributed. So we're about to, I think, restart it. Yeah, that would be awesome. Love to love to see that keep going. You mentioned a minute ago that, um, you know, part of your job is to basically drum up new new client work. You guys have a pretty incredible client roster, which we talked through a little bit. How would you define what makes a great client for you guys? Well, as I said, I love it when they're smarter than I am. And that's not so hard because for some, for whatever reason, I have a lot of clients I consider to be kind of brilliant. Um, it's like playing tennis with a better player. It makes you, it makes you work harder. It makes the work hard, better. And I, I, for one, like clients who have who are strongly opinionated but not overly controlling if you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i'm sure you like exactly the same kind of client someone who has clear views has very sort of strong views about what um who they are uh what's important um who their audience is who the market is and so on but doesn't want to design it wants wants in fact to be the the recipient of design rather than the generator of design um, and people with strong personalities, you know, people who actually have 
strong points of view and things that are worth expressing. And and who you know like um like every restaurant owner you know the the restaurant tends to reflect exactly who they are. If they're kind of a snob, then when you get to the front to the front counter, it's like to the host, it's like that's how they'll behave. And but if they're open and generous and welcoming, that's how the people that work for them will behave. And so I think that our work reflects the same kind of hopefully positive tendencies that uh, that our clients have. But I, but on the other hand, I, I, you know the only one can't choose can't, one can't literally choose all their clients i'd like to think that we we're busy enough to work for people we that we that we think will be a successful relationship but they have to call first right or you have to get in touch. <laughs> you have somehow they have to know about you and and somehow connect connect with you and have a project so it's um it's i it's a it's a Two things to me are kind of unexplainable. One is how these projects, I mean, I can tell you literally how a project came to me, but how projects in general come to us, I have no idea how that happens. Uh, and how we literally come up with these ideas, I, I, I'm at a loss to explain it. And and every client wants you to explain their process, but frankly, it's like, it seems to me that as soon as you do, it's it's wrong. <laughs> so coincidentally, that was going to be my next question was, was where you where you think your best clients come from. Um, I'm, I'm sure you probably have lots of referrals and people who've seen a certain piece of work or, you know, know somebody at Pentagram or worked with a client formerly. Do you, do you feel like there's any typical patterns that you see for, for really good clients? Um, you know, it's interesting lately, <clears throat> lately, I think we've been doing, because we are, um, because the, the, because we've done a lot of work and because I feel like it's time to – when I left Pentagram, I was able to do much more of what I want to do for me as opposed to what I am – you know, what my sense of responsibility was for the entire office. And so we started to do a lot more pro bono work. And what's interesting is that you know, we did it because the least served people, especially in New York because that's where we do a great deal of it, the least served people – people that are least served by design are the ones who appreciate it the most at a certain point. So thinking about, for instance, the interface between the public at large and you know the institutions of New York, whether it's governmental or cultural, that interface, the point at which those two things touch, can be extremely challenging. As, as anybody who goes to the Department of Motor Vehicles or City Hall or whatever agency knows. And so we started doing work for a variety of these different agencies through, uh, through a person who used to be at the Robin Hood Foundation, a woman, Lonnie Tanner, who's, who invents projects and then calls us when she thinks she has one that we can help with. Those projects surprisingly turn into, well, interesting projects in their own right and extremely satisfying work, but occasionally turn into great, great projects um, that have nothing to do with pro bono, that are actually real, you know, for-profit projects. So, for example, just as a kind of train of, um, of you know, a, a, set of, a set of circumstances that, that led to a great project, a few years ago, Lonnie connected me with the James Beard Foundation because they wanted to design a pop-up restaurant. They had virtually no money, and all the money really had to be spent on making the restaurant. There was, you know, we weren't going to take a fee for it. They're a not-for-profit. They're a fantastic organization, and so we designed this pop-up restaurant. It was a great, it was a great run. It was um, 27 days of fantastic, you know, chefs coming in and sort of cooking these meals for 80 people at a at a clip. It was all about. Um, sort of getting people to sign up and this notion of, of urgency, like the architecture of urgency. So every day, one of the numbers from zero to 27 would get crossed off. And we actually printed them in four foot numbers on the tables. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the meal, the chef would come out with a can of red spray paint and kind of cross off that, that meal, like a big calendar oh, while, cool. while the diners were there. And then it became a thing where they would start drawing and signing and it became a kind of whole event you know, just the, the end of the meal became an event and also breathing in all those fumes from the, uh, from the spray paint, <laughs> um, ruining the meal for you. And that led to 
in a couple of steps, I think um, I ended up working. I ended up being on one of the the, the award committees. I now chair the restaurant design award committee, which happened years later, but eventually got to the point where James Beard was part of a bid to design, operate, build, design, build, and operate the U.S. pavilion at the expo in Milan that happened in 2015. And that was because that expo was about food in the kind of global sense and, you know, feeding the planet and also, but in the kind of personal sense. And so, you know, here's a case where literally a tiny little job that we did as a, for fun and for nothing turned into this fantastic project where we got to design the U.S. pavilion, you know, like the ultimate identity project for the entire country to appear at an expo, at a world's fair. So, you know, it, it led from, so that that sort of chain of events, I think, I, I notice happens more and more. You do something for either charitable or personal or, you know, uh, reasons having nothing to do with profit and actually doing it for fun. And it turns into something that's eventually a fantastic project and a completely different scale and a completely different um, character. It's kind of fantastic. So you never know where these things will lead. And I think it's a it's one of the things that, especially during the, I remember giving, being on a panel during the financial crisis and my advice to people was to start doing much more pro bono work because A, it's incredibly satisfying. And, it, and even if it turns into nothing in the end, it's still the right thing to do with your spare time. But you also never know where these things lead. And it's great to, uh, it's great to make these connections. Similarly, I had this um, kind of early obsession when I started my my business of tracking because I'm a designer. I was tracking all of my project leads in Adobe Illustrator, you know, the greatest CRM ever, and I was just sort of creating these uh, dots and lines, as I called it, kind of connections between what I was attending, where I was going, who I met, and what projects it turned into. And I was I was always surprised how many projects came out of hanging out at the AIGA, which was in theory, a whole bunch of competitors, but just being involved and giving back, it kind of surfaced a lot of opportunities. And it's crazy how many things opened up just from, from seemingly something that seemed like a waste of time. That's interesting because I, I have the opposite view of hanging out with, with groups of architects, but I could be wrong. You know, it could be that in fact, it's a, it's, it's a missed opportunity. I've always thought that one of the big differences between what you do and what I do is that you tend to work for the marketing departments and what you, what you do tends to be renewable. So if you do the identity for, you know, company X in four or five years, whenever the CEO changes, there'll be another job to do an identity and it might go to, <laughs> right. to me or to someone else. If you do the annual report or if you do, um, you know, this book jacket, some there there are lots of others coming down the line. And and it isn't so much a zero-sum game. In architecture, if I do the project, you don't. And it there's very often there's a very often no other project that follows. And so there's a level of competitiveness among architects that is very different than the than the kind of collegial um relationships among graphic designers. And it's one of the things I loved about being at Pentagram and love and still love about hanging out with graphic designers is that they're actually all friends. You know, there there's a level of genuine friendship because because you are all um the work is much more fungible. It actually is renewable and you're working for not capital budgets, but marketing, you know, renewable budgets. It's a very different it's a very different world. So it may work for you, or it may be that I'm just missing the greatest business opportunity ever <laughs> out, of my own, out of my own obstinance. It's, it's one or the other. It could just be that I'm a weirdo. I don't know. No, I, I believe that, in fact, you're you're right. That It may also be that, that graphic maybe, – it may be that you, graphic, design, graphic designers, because of the kind of joy with which they do the work, attract people who are actually more, more like potential, potential clients than, than architects do. But yeah, who knows? I'll try it. I'll change my, change my <laughs> just totally change. <clears throat> exactly. It's time to change. Are there any other things that you look out for? So if you've got a, a client that comes to you and asks for a project, what are some of those red flags? Do you guys reply to RFPs or, you know, are there other things that scare you away? Um, we do reply to RFPs and I'm just about to stop doing it because we don't get the work that way. Um, 
Mm-hmm. When someone, you know, there's a, there's a, one of the city agencies that is, um, which is, which control the DDC, the department of design and construction controls all of the building in New York city. So it's a multi-billion dollar agency, all of the firehouses, schools, well, schools, school construction authority, but you know, firehouses and every agency work and all the, you know, homes that I, I can't even everything. Every every municipal project that's built, every sewer and so on, it goes through the DDC. And there's a project program called Design Excellence, and we were part of the Design Excellence program for three years, and got I would say once every two weeks or so got an RFP that on an usually on interesting projects and some that we had no experience, some we had a lot of experience, and I think we got in three years we got one, and I realized that the process. By which the evaluation takes place, it's a it's a it's a bunch of people sort of having to translate your qualities into numbers, and ultimately score your proposal. And we don't score well, I guess, is what it comes down to. It's not you know. So I don't think that uh, I don't think that we get projects on paper. I think we tend to get projects in person. And if someone, so if someone, for instance, isn't willing to come to the office or isn't willing to meet, that's like one strike. I'm not, I I can't, if you're not willing to meet the person you're going to work with, then that doesn't bode well for the future. Um, I think that everyone has, everyone feels like they're a pretty good read on the, on the people that they meet like right away. And whether, whether you know, you know, kind of instantly whether you think you're going to get along and, Mm -hmm. you know, probably, a reasonably high percent of the time I'm right, but I'm also wrong enough that I have to be careful because you never know what's going to turn into like the next great project and your initial impression about someone may be wrong. And in fact, I've had it work the other way too, where I thought this is a fantastic person and we end up just not getting along eventually for whatever reason, for, you know, personality or circumstance. So, you know, obviously you want to look for someone who you're going to be compatible with, who you think will trust you, who you trust. It is a kind of intimate relationship and they tend to be kind of long-term, And there's also just a level of intelligence, curiosity, openness, um, fluency, being conversant in – I mean, having a great conversation with somebody is a pretty good indication that it'll be fun for you to work with them, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, at a dinner party, at a a party, at a bar, wherever, that – if you have a really great conversation, chances are the project will – even if it's not necessarily destined to be great, will be great in its own way. And every project can't be a signature project, but every project can be as good as it can be and can exceed expectations. And so, you know, for all those are all the met, those are some of the metrics. But I think it's all quite intuitive at this point. And I assume it is with you too that you meet someone and kind of have a sense like this will be fun or or maybe this won't be fun. Yeah, and I think I totally agree with the whole RFP thing. We're sort of in the same spot of like, hmm, the ones that we've won are the ones that we thought we were going to win from the very beginning and and all the other ones, you know, it's just kind of a way for them to artfully choose the people they wanted in the first place and justify it through numbers. Right, and even if they're not doing that, even if that's not, they really don't have an a priori sense of who they want, there are, there are firms that just score really well in that way. And, you know, I congratulations to them because it means that they're communicating in a way that I have a, you know, that I'm not doing as good a job. Um, you know, it's like this is a sort of change of subject. But I remember at a certain point, you know, I, I was at Pentagram for a long time and it was, it was a, you know, a fantastic place to work, fantastic people, um, great education, great um, level of complexity to kind of run a business, help run a business that size. But until the very day that I left, people would, I'd be on the phone with someone and they'd say, well, you know, blah, 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 architect at Pentagram. And they'd go, oh, really? I didn't know they had architects at Pentagram. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I have been doing this for like 19 years. Pentagram's been around for like for like 30 years. And it's not your fault that you don't know that. It's my fault that you don't know that. But it does seem insurmountable at a certain level. And, you know, I sometimes think the way that I the way that I communicate in an RFP is also it is my fault and it is insurmountable. Um, so it's just not uh, for us the best way to connect. Do you have any dream projects that you'd like to do? 
Well, I just did my own house, which was, you know, everybody mm -hmm. says, mm -hmm. I remember it was when I was, um, growing up being an architect, someone would say, well, have you, you know, have you designed your dream house yet? And I thought, well, I don't really have a dream house, but I designed some pretty dreamy houses for others. But, um, <laughs> Uh, but finally, I, I, we did our own. We we kind of renovated a house we've had for a very long time, and that was kind of fantastic. So that's that's a great project. Um, there's a little project for a, a museum uh, that has to do with graphic design that I'm dying to do because it's just such a it's just something it's just something that I care so much about. The I once told someone that you can make more of an impact by changing McDonald's a little bit than you can by designing. A single museum in some single city, and to some degree, I still believe that. You know that mass design for mass is actually an incredibly important thing to be able to do. I still think you know to design the gas station, or actually what will ultimately become kind of the energy station of the future, would be fantastic. And and that's for the same reason that changing McDonald's would be great. And I once got a chance actually to design, to do just that when we were at Pentagram. And it was ironic, or not ironic, but it was interesting because the very first project, the reason that Pentagram existed is a project for, was a project for BP when they realized they needed an architect to design the, the gas station. They needed graphic designers to design the identity and all the signage. And they needed an industrial designer to design the pumps and all of the hardware. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of, um, so doing this again, 25 years later seemed really fantastic. In the end, the project turned out to be much more about how to have good coffee in the, you know, how to, how to make this a kind of, um, uh, food stop more than a gas station. So it wasn't at all what I was thinking about, but it is much, but like, uh, but like biology today, as opposed to when I, when I was studying it, I think that the idea of a gas station or how to, how to charge, how to deal with vehicles, is a is a really interesting problem again. So I'm sort of attracted to those problems, but those are those are problems that rarely walk through the door. You know, I I think we could probably keep going for another hour or two, but I know you probably have your day to get on with. So um, maybe before we let you go, um, I always love asking our guests. So I'm going to ask you too. What do you find that you are most obsessed with right now? You know like just over half the country I'm obsessed with, <laughs> I'm obsessed with the kind of political situation it is. And this is not a design. I mean, this is to some degree a design issue, but this is not explicitly a design issue. Um, it is nearly impossible to avoid every conversation that I have either consciously avoids it or just gives up and says, well, okay, let's just kind of get into this. It's, and it's partly because you know, living in New York, we've known Trump for so long and have such a kind of clear sense of who this person is that seeing it played out on a national scale is truly horrifying, you know? And so that's kind of my, that's kind of my, um, obsession du jour, but I'm, but I'm trying to go through a 12 step program of, um, of giving up, giving that up. And so I'll, I'll, and just as soon as I do, I will be looking for the next obsession. You know, it's, 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 it's a kind of a uh, movable feast. Um, and, and I have to admit that I'm just, there's, I have just enough failure of imagination to be, to have my obsession be the, the project I'm really interested in rather than something that I'm, you know, kind of pursuing it. I really do to a large extent live, through what I do in spite of the fact of having a family and, you know, children, dogs, et cetera. But, uh, you know, it's what I think about is what I make. And, and I do kind of feel sorry for people that don't make things. It seems to me to be the kind of primal, the primal thing that all of us should be doing at some level. And so, um, my obsession is making things and I'm always looking for the next great thing to make. Yeah, that's awesome. I'd imagine a lot of our listeners would relate to that or agree with that for sure. James, before we let you go, um, tell us where everybody can track you down online or uh, learn more about Bieber Architects. So our website, and I, this is one of those things that I, I've learned, I've uh, lived to regret, but our, our website is Bieber.co, B-I-B-E-R.co. And I have to say that .co, not .com, about, I don't know, 50 or 100 times a day. Um <laughs> 
dot com was taken, and so I ended up with dot co. And I, I think it's I've spent more time with fewer letters than anybody ever has in the history of man. I keep saying, no, no, it's easier than I thought. Oh, this will be the next great thing, dot co. But it turned out not to be. So yeah, Bieber dot co is where you can find us. And you know, it's um, it's a website designed by one of my favorite graphic designers, a kind of English for a, a reductivist English firm, I should say, called Spin. And so it's um, we're really proud of the of the work, but we're also proud of the way it's the way it's shown. So check us out. Very cool. I totally dig the site off to track the spin guys down. And of course, Instagram, Bieber Architects, Twitter, Bieber Architects, and so on. But um, it, for for me, the website is kind of the center. It's the archive. Yeah, and I'll uh, second that. Check out the 100 ideas section of BieberArchitects.co. Thanks. Awesome. Well, James, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Hopefully we can maybe do a part two sometime in the near future. Josh, it was really, really fun. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for being obsessed with design. <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or the president say, or, or something. Or, no, no, I was going to say, or, it's, or, or, or uh, thank you for unfortunately being obsessed with design. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, that's episode number 64 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head over to obsessedshow.com. If you have a moment, please head over to iTunes. If you're not already subscribed, hit that subscribe button. And also, I would really appreciate if you'd write us a review to help others find the show. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Visit milesherndon.com for more information. If you have any ideas of other great designers you'd like to hear interviewed on Obsessed Show, please tweet to at Obsessed Show or at Josh Miles. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com for more info. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>